everyone to Jacob and his children and journey through Genesis with Rabbi David Silver. We will be starting today with Genesis 40. Students are encouraged to follow on in the Tanakh of their choice. However, we will be sharing um, Sukim from Sepharia. Um, it's a pleasure to have this continued series with Rabbi Silver on um, going, going through Genesis. Um, if you are joining us on Zoom, please, just one point of housekeeping, if you are not actively speaking, can you please mute yourself? Otherwise, we get some strange audio artifacts and feedback. Otherwise, I strongly encourage people to turn on their camera, do ask questions. Um, you can ask them in the chat, both on Zoom and on Facebook Live. They will be monitored and whenever I'll make sure to read them out whenever Rabbi Silver takes a pauses for that. Um, if you want to stay as an attendee and not a panelist, please make use of the raise hand function when you have a question. And with that, good morning, good afternoon, Rabbi Silver, okay, thank I you. don't want to keep you from teaching. Okay, thank you very much. Let's begin with chapter 40. We're in the middle, of course, of the story of Yosef, which actually is the primary story till the very end of this book. Uh, last we've seen, Yosef is now in jail. He was placed in jail there by, the, by his Adon, as he calls him, his master, Joseph, having come to Egypt as a slave and we have the incident with his with the Mrs. Potiphar, who accuses Joseph. Both, uh, in, she accuses him in front of the members of the house in which she finds herself. That's one accusation, and she had a second accusation of Joseph when she speaks to her husband. The first accusation is he attempted to rape her, but the second accusation is not exactly that. The second accusation, as we understood it. He mocked me, he was with Sachek, maybe teasing, maybe as a sexual innuendo as well, but fundamentally, her complaint to the husband is that the slave that you brought is trying to ward it over me. Uh, and he doesn't know his place. That's the accusation that's uh, made to the husband, at which point we're told the husband, Potiphar, gets angry. By Yicharapo, back in chapter 39, in the 19th verse, and he places him in jail. The term for jail that's found in verse number 20 where Joseph finds himself, it's called the Beit HaSohar, where the captives of the king are found. So it's a jail in which there are, uh, one might say enemies of the state, enemies of the king are placed in that jail. And this jail is in the same house. It's in the house of Potiphar. And that's where Joseph finds himself. That is to say, Potiphar places him in a jail, which is in Potiphar's house. That itself is very interesting. One might have expected that he would summarily execute Joseph for making advances or whatever upon his wife. And not only that, he is at the end of the day, the Sar HaTabachim. Let's call him the chief butcher. And it's never quite clear exactly what he's butchering. Is it only animals? That's possible. But again, tabachim can refer to a tabach, a butcher can be butchering animals, butchering people. We don't get a sense that he might be squeamish about killing anybody. And yet, strangely enough, he places Joseph in a jail in the Beit HaSohar. At the end of the chapter, we were told that Joseph in the Beit HaSohar is given free reign by the chief, by the head of the Beit HaSohar, the Sar Beit HaSohar. Uh, in verse number, uh, 
2020, uh, he finds himself in the jail under the uh, leadership of the Sarbet Soar. And once again, at the end of chapter 39, that's where we concluded last time, we find that God Hashem, that particular name of God, is with Joseph. The personal God is with Joseph. And causes Joseph to be treated with kindness, with grace and kindness. And his chain is sarbeta soa. So we have the two words that often come together, chain and chesed. And the language, and then once again, he places this thing into Joseph's hand in verse number 22. Um, everything that was done there, he would do. And finally, in Sarbeta Soar, read Komu Uma Biyado. The Sarbeta Soar pays no attention to anything that is in Joseph's control, Biyado. Basher Hashem for God is with him. Basher Huose Hashem Matzliach, and the concluding phrase of chapter 39, all that he does, God makes successful. It's never clear exactly what he does, but whatever it may be, he's successful. And we took note of the fact. Uh, it's fairly obvious, but we took note of the fact that the language that appears at the end of chapter 39 in the situation where Joseph finds himself in jail is strikingly similar to the language that appears in the first part of chapter 39, where Joseph comes down to Egypt as a slave and step by step becomes, one might say, the master of the house of uh, of Potiphar, all the expressions, God is with him, but he has Shemet Yosef. We have that in the chapter 39, verse number two. Um, and again, uh, in verse number three, we have the term that every he would do would be good. We have it in verse number three. Hashem Matzliach We have the term Matzliach at the end of chapter 39. We have the term Matzliach more than once in the beginning of chapter 39. We have the expression that things are placed into Joseph's hand in the beginning of chapter 39, 39, in addition, in verse number four, in verse number six, uh, we have that at the end, I, that uh, we have that same expression here at the end of chapter 39. Um, we have, uh, in short, uh, we have the term chesed and chain at the end of chapter 39, that Joseph in the jail finds chesed and chain. And we have in the beginning of chapter 39, um, we have there, it says that, uh, Joseph finds grace or favor in the eyes of Potiphar. In short, virtually every expression at the end of chapter 39, in which Joseph is in jail, is parallel to the beginning of chapter 39, in which Joseph has a kind of meteoric rise to power in the house of the chief butcher of, of Egypt. In other words, to put it in these terms, Joseph is a person. It makes no difference where you put it. You can put him in the worst of circumstances, which is he is initially a slave in the house of Potiphar, and he rises to great prominence. And then even in the jail, in the side, there he finds favor with the Sarbeta Soar, and suddenly he has this enormous power within the limits, obviously. He can't escape. But within the Beta Soar, he's given an enormous amount of uh, 
of power, of freedom, one might say. That's Joseph. Wherever he is, he's going to find a way. He rises to the top wherever you may put him. And that's how chapter 39 ends. Of course, at the end of chapter 39, he is in jail. He finds himself in jail. He did not commit a crime, quite the opposite. He acted very nobly, but be that as it may, he finds himself in jail. And now we begin our study, we continue with chapter 40. And chapter 40 has many interesting features to it. And we will uh, take a look now at chapter 40. Chapter 40 begins, and we discussed this last week, by the way, what I said last week off the top of my head, that I believe that in the book of Genesis, the, the phrase, appears only six times in the book of Genesis, three in conjunction with Abraham and three in conjunction with Joseph is actually correct. I checked it out and what I said last week uh, is, is correct. It is exactly correct. Three times with Abraham and three times with Joseph. Uh, maybe we'll pick up a little bit, but last week I thought that was very interesting in terms of the parallels between the story of Joseph on one hand and the story of Abraham on the other. We may come back to that again. Uh, Can I say something, Rabbi Simran? Yes? Can I say something? Yes. I think I noticed that uh, the usage of chen v'chesed, matzachen and so on, is usually when it's not motivated. Well, I mean, what did he do that uh, he matzachen v'chesed? What is behind this? Is it his behavior? He's looking? What is it? So when the narrative doesn't have any motivation, usually it says uh, just matzachen v'chesed, like don't ask questions, that's how it happened. Could be so, it could be so. In this particular case, it sounds like, I do, uh, to reinforce your point, it says that God creates the situation in which he finds chen v'chesed. There's a sense in this story, an important a point that it's God who is, for whatever reason, we'll get to this, it's God for that's helping reason, Joseph that's move up. That's my point, for whatever reason. We don't know the reason actually. Right, correct. We will. We'll get back to that point later. That's an important point. We'll get back to that point later. It's well said. There is no explicit reason. I mean, he's successful. That's for sure. And success breeds success. But apart from that, uh, there does appear to be God's hand throughout this amazing rise to prominence, both in the house of Potiphar and in the jail. I'll come back to that point. So after that, after this story, after we find him in jail, that's the first verse after these things. So it says that the butler, the mashkeh, the one who gives drink, and the ofer, the baker, sinned. And here the Torah uses the word to their master, comma, to the king of Egypt. Now it could have simply said to the king of Egypt, to their master means, first of all, they work directly for the king. But second of all, the, the term Adonahem reminds us, obviously, of the term Adon that appeared in the previous chapter. Potiphar is Joseph's Adon. Joseph makes that point several times. The Torah makes that point several times. Uh, my Adon, says Joseph, doesn't know what goes on in the house, right? Um, the term Adon is used uh, 
several times in chapter 39 in reference to Potiphar. My point being that Joseph's uh, responses in chapter 40 to, to, the, to the situation that he finds himself in, we should certainly connect it uh, to his own personal experience in the house of Potiphar. He knows what it means to be working for an Ardon and to be accused of disloyalty to the Ardon, which is what Mrs. Potiphar accused him of. The servant, the slave that is disloyal to the master, that is inappropriate to the master. So here, once again, we have two people who sinned Ladonahem to their master, to the king of Egypt. Here's a point I wanted to emphasize as we begin our study, which is that when anybody reads this first verse, I think the sense we would all get is that the two of them, these two officers of the king, have conspired together against the king. It doesn't sound like there's two separate things, but rather, since the Torah puts them together and they sinned against their master, one does get the impression that there's some kind of perhaps a conspiracy of sorts, the two are working in tandem. Uh, for example, in the parallel story that we find in, in the uh, Megillah, there we have exactly that. There we have the end of the second chapter of the Megillah, a story in which two of the officers of Ahasuerus, one is named Big Ton and the other is named Teresh, they chose, they attempted to harm, literally to stretch out the hand, to harm Ahasuerus. What's very interesting is they're certainly the two together are conspiring. And not only is that interesting, but as we have noted in the past, Teresh could be seen, whatever the word Teresh means, but Teresh, Tirosh in the Bible is actually wine. Big Ton, Big Ton, we don't know what that means, but we do have in the book of Daniel, Pat the daily bread. So we have Big Ton and Teresh, we could call them or the offices of bread and wine, which of course is identical to the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophim. Clearly one story plays off the other, but there it's the two of them together who are uh, attempting to harm the king. And Mordechai finds out, informs Esther who informs the king about both of them and both are hanged. Now, since we have that uh, sort of story in our minds, Let's keep that in mind because over here, the whole point of chapter 40 is going to be that Joseph will discriminate between the Sarha Mashkim and the Sarha Ophim. But we'll come back to this point. I made this point in the past. I want to repeat it. I think it's an interesting point, which we'll get to very soon. But in any event, when you read the first verse, it does appear that the two of them act in tandem. And then the next verse is, well, and Paro got angry against his two officers. Sounds like they're together. The baker and the and the and the and the butler and the baker. He plays them plural, but Mishmar. Mishmar literally is a place where they are watched or guarded. Uh, and I mentioned may have mentioned this last week. So the jail, which is called the Beit Hasoar, and it's also called the place where people are asurim. You might say Beit Asurim, people who are bound up or tied down. Now we have a new term, the term Mishmar, and that's a term that appears later in the Bible. And Mishmar later in the Bible, in the case of the um, one who was gathering, the case of the one who was cursing, blaspheming God, I believe also in the case of the one who cursed, they put him, they put him in the Mishmar for they didn't know what to do with him. 
So the mishmar in those stories is a kind of holding pen. In other words, mishmar is a place in which you are kept temporarily until something happens to you. So the term mishmar, which was not used for Joseph, Joseph was placed in jail, and the presumption being he will stay there possibly forever. But these two fellows, who about whom Paro was angry, they're placed in a mishmar. That is, they're going to be held there for a while until Paro will decide what to do uh, about them. And we'll get to that point. That's a very important point for the story. So here they have these two big officers, important people that are brought to the, the special jail where people that work for the king who are to be put in jail are put there. And Paro puts them both there together. Where Joseph is bound up there. Here, here we have the term Asur. He's tied up, he's bound up. And now we come to the next verse, which is very interesting. Verse number four. By Yifkod Sarah Tabochim et Yosef Itam, by Yisharet Otam, by Yiyu Yamim Amishmar. Suddenly, prior to this, the person in the jail, the main person in jail, was the chief jailer, the Sarbet Asoa. And suddenly, in verse number four, lo and behold, we have the reintroduction of Potiphar. The Sarah Tabachim appointed Joseph over them. He assigns Joseph to them. And Joseph serves them. They were in the uh, custody, Mishmar, good term, in custody for some time. And once again, you read verse number four, and you flip back to chapter 39, we have exactly those terms in terms of Potiphar. Vayif code, right? Here we have it, Potiphar, in the beginning of chapter 39, verse number four. Vayaf deo al beito. He appointed him over his house. And in verse number five, so twice we have the word right? So you have that, and not only that, by Yisharet, when Joseph comes down as a slave and Potiphar sees how successful he is, um, we are told in verse number four, now we have exactly parallel in chapter 40, verse number four. And this gives us an insight now into why Sarah Tabachim, the question many have asked, if he, if he suspected Joseph of disloyalty or, or inappropriate behavior towards his wife, why didn't the chief butcher just, just butcher him? Uh, as Jacob had said earlier, when he heard Joseph is missing, Tarof, Taraf, Yosef, he's torn to pieces. Why didn't he tear Joseph to pieces? He's used to tearing things to pieces, animals to pieces, maybe people. But of course, he has a use for Joseph. Joseph is very useful to him. When two big shots come to jail, he's the, he, the Sarah Tabachim steps in there. And as Joseph do, exactly what Joseph did earlier in chapter 39. Joseph is useful to Potiphar. He has a one upstairs near the wife. So he puts him, he assigns him to the downstairs area with a lock under lock and key. But Joseph is useful. Potiphar uses Joseph. Potiphar knows that Joseph can be very helpful. That's what you have over here. So he does exactly what he, what exactly the same uh, story that we had at the beginning of 39. We have now in chapter 40, verse number four. So Joseph is assigned, he's the Misharet, and by Yafkideu, he's assigned to these two important people.
or with them be Mishmar. So Mishmar is custody, they're being watched. And at some point in time, something's going to happen. That's the idea of Mishmar. Now we continue our little story. I'll, after, I'll stop in a few minutes to take comments and questions. So here we have very interesting. It says the two of them have a dream on the same night. So on one hand, it reinforces what we see till now. These two, these two are actually one. The two of them, they're two pieces in a pod. They conspire together. They're found guilty together. They're placed together. They're both under Joseph's uh, in the same custody. Joseph deals with both of them. But this verse says, uh, and they have dreams on the same night. But the Torah says, Ish each one, each dream according to its own pitaron, to its own solution, or own meaning. And now for the first time, you get a sense that maybe these two people who appear to be identical and in jail for the same reasons, but maybe they're different. Maybe they're not identical because each one may have his own particular solution. Each Peter one might be different. But then, of course, the Torah repeats it. It repeats again. Yes, the two of them who both work for the king, who both are bound up in the jail. So on one hand, it sounds like it's all the same. On the other hand, there's already a hint over here that maybe they're different. And just to uh, reflect on this for a moment, the point I think I would make at this point is the following. This is chapter 40. In chapter 41, we encounter exactly the same kind of scenario. The same, but different. Because in chapter 41, which will be the next set of dreams, hope we get there next week. In chapter 41, we have Paro has two dreams. The first dream of Paro is about uh, the cows, the lean cows and the healthy cows, and the lean ones swallowing up the healthy cows. And then he goes to sleep, it says, and he has another dream, the same night. He has a second dream. In the second dream, there are sheaves, there are stalks, healthy, unhealthy, sickly, and you know, those in good shape. Once again, the, the, the unhealthy ones, the lean ones, the shriveled ones, eat up the others. He wakes up in the morning and behold, it's a dream. And if you will get to this next week, one of the critical questions is in power consults his magicians, those who can interpret dreams. And there are none who can interpret them in potero tom lifaro. None can interpret them plural to pharaoh. And then the butler remembers Joseph. Joseph's brought out of jail. And what does jo Joseph say to Paro? Chalom Paro Echadu. It's one dream. It is one dream with two parts, but fundamentally it's one dream. The magician said, Torah says they couldn't interpret them, but there's no them. In chapter 41, at least, and that's the point. It may appear to be two, but it's really one. And in chapter 40, the interpretation is, you may think it's the same dream, but it's really two. So is it one dream? Is it two dreams? Part of the, the genius of Joseph is to be able to make these distinctions, to understand what appears on the surface to be one thing is actually two, what appears on the surface to be two is actually one. So the dreams, of course, are related to each other. We'll pick up on this next week. But in any event, 
the two of them have a dream on the same night. Fine. And now they're under the care of Joseph. Potiphar has put them under the care of Joseph. And now let's continue our story. So we're up to, um, by Yeshua, we're up to verse number five now. Uh, verse number six, I would say. Verse number six. Um, so Joseph approaches them in the morning. He sees them. They're always together. He sees the two of them. And the two of them are Zoafim. Zaf can be angry, can be upset. I have a translation that's distraught. It's a good translation. Something's wrong. He sees something's wrong. They haven't said anything. You can see them. They're very disturbed. They're very troubled. They, Puru, are troubled. Both of them. And he asked the officers of Pharaoh who were with him in the Mishmar, in the holding pen, in the house of his master. He said, Why do you appear to, why is your face bad? Why are you upset? What's bothering you? The two of them. And they said to him, We had a dream, the two of us. There's no one to interpret to interpret the dream. We're troubled by our dream. This is a very meaningful statement. Says Joseph to them, are dreams not the province of God? God can interpret. And he says, tell me your dream. And of course, this is a very interesting statement. The interpretation of dreams belongs to God, tell me your dream. What it seems to be saying is, one can interpret this in many different ways. One could interpret it in the following way. One could say, listen, only God can interpret dreams. God knows the truth. Human beings can't really know. The, no human being can be guaranteed to know the truth. Only God knows the truth. Given the fact that no one can really know the truth except for God, you might as well tell it to me because I have a good as chance as anybody else to interpret your dream, since dreams are not within the human, human province. That is a way to read it, but I don't think that's the best way to read it. The better way to read it seems to be something like, God will interpret your dream, tell me the dream, and maybe God will tell me the interpretation. That's what it sounds like to me. In other words, what Joseph seems to be suggesting is that somehow Joseph can be a conduit through which God will inform them of the, uh, of the correct interpretation. And right here at this point, I think we, the reader, we, the students, say to ourselves, we should keep this in mind. How does Joseph see himself vis-a-vis -vis God? That's the question. Because um, this is maybe the first time he made this kind of a statement, but it's not going to be the last time. He will make such a statement on several different occasions. He'll tell this to Pharaoh, the same thing to Paro. It's not I who interpret dreams, it's God, right? It's God, once again, maybe God works through me. But later in the Joseph narrative, and this is, we'll get to this later on, he will say on more than one occasion to his brothers, after he reveals himself to the brothers, I am Joseph, and don't feel so bad what you did to me. It's true, you meant bad. It's true, you meant to hurt me. No question about it. However, God has God's plan, right? You thought to do evil, but God thought to do good. In other words, 
And he says this more than once, and he says this at the very end of his life. How could I possibly harm you? This is God's plan. We're, all, we're part of God's plan. But of course, what he's also saying is, we're all part of God's plan, but God's plan works through Joseph. Uh, so we'll come back to this point. There are a couple of other places as well where he speaks. This is actually a very interesting statement that he makes. Uh, one might say that in general, somebody who sees himself or herself as the person through whom God speaks, such people in general, I would say, maybe this is a overgeneralization, but uh, I'll speak for myself. When I meet such people who believe that they know exactly what God is planning, I tend not to like them too much. And I would say that uh, Joseph is not necessarily a person who seems to get along well with other people in his, uh, in his, in his social uh, circle. Certainly when he's with the brothers and he told the brothers about his dreams, right? Which may be understood in retrospect as coming from God. But in point of fact, when you tell people you're going to bow down before me, or the sun, moon, and stars will bow down, 11 stars, no less, uh, that's not going to guarantee uh, that they're going to necessarily embrace you. So, but this is something about Joseph that's very striking. And we got to keep this in mind as we proceed through the story. I'm going to read a couple more verses and I'll stop and take comments. Um, so now Joseph invites them both to tell me your dream. And the invitation, tell me your dream, one of them speaks up, and that's the Sarah Mashkim. Sarah Mashkim speaks up in verse number nine. So he volunteers his dream first, the, the butler. And the dream is the following. Here's my dream, he says. In the dream, there's a vine in front of me, and there are three branches, and it's beginning to bud, and, and suddenly it blossoms, and it, it, it ripens into, into clusters of grapes. And I have a cup of paro in my hand, kos paro biyadi, I take the grapes, I press them into Paro's cup, and I place the cup in Paro's hand. That's my dream. To which Joseph gives the interpretation, this is the interpretation. The three, um, the three branches, those are three days. Three days from now, Pharaoh will literally lift up your head and restore you to your post. So I just want to say, just translate this. I will, we will, I'll stop in a minute before we continue with Joseph's little speech. But Joseph's interpretation is there are two interesting things about the interpretation. The second point is, and it comes back to what we have encountered already in chapter 39, uh, over and over again, and that is the word Yad. Remember in chapter 39, the word Yad appeared over and over again. First, everything is placed into Joseph's hands, 
Things are put in Biyado. And then in the next story of Mrs. Potiphar, Joseph uh, loses his coat and the coat is Biyado. At the end of the chapter, Joseph in jail, things are once again placed Biyado. And Joseph was sent down to Egypt, brought down to Egypt, or sold into slavery. Uh, the first, there was the thinking of killing him. And Judah said, Yad, don't, don't harm him. Don't be shoreach yad. So the word yad is a dominant word. And the point over here, what Joseph says to the butler is, if in your dream, you're, you're taking the cup of wine and you're putting the cup of wine into Paro's hand. Joseph understands that to mean you're giving Paro control. Your dream is a dream of you imagine yourself giving Paro control. Well, if you give him control, says Joseph, then the likelihood is that Paro will actually take you back because you do what Paro wants, which is you give Paro the power, you give Paro the control. Uh, that is, and the fact that the butler has spoken first and volunteered the dream suggests also that the butler, maybe subconsciously, has a sense that perhaps the interpretation of his dream is a positive one. That's one point. That's a critical point about Biyad. And the second interesting point about Joseph is that the dreams over here and with Paro have something else in common, which is, which is that in each of the cases, Joseph's interpretation of the dream of the baker and the butler and Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, in each of those cases, it involves time. In the case over here, they are put with Mishmar, and Joseph understands that the, th the, the three, the number three, refers to three days. Later in the uh, chapter, the end of the chapter, we are told that on the third day, which is Pharaoh's birthday, maybe Joseph knows that, but the, the point of Joseph's ability to interpret has to do with his understanding of the way time works, whether it's three days or whether it's seven years and seven years, which is critical to Joseph's interpretation. And we are reminded of the fact that Joseph had his own dreams. And the second of Joseph's dreams, back in chapter 37, he dreamt that, that the sun, the moon, and the stars are bowing down to me. Now, we all remember that in the uh, beginning of the Torah, in chapter one of the Torah, on the fourth day when God creates the various luminaries, the Ma'orot, the great, the great luminary, the sun, and the small one, and the stars, that the, the reason or the purpose of those is is to, be, is to reign, Moshe was a ruler, to rule over the day and night, and and they are there to, uh, to enable us to, uh, to have the concept of, 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 of time, whether it's the day, night, whether it's the festivals, etc. years. So there's the sun and the moon primarily are there to uh, enable us to develop a sense of time. And they are also described in the Torah as Moshel. They are the rulers, the Mosheel. And when Joseph had the dream that the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the brother said to Joseph, what Joseph is dreaming about is to be the ultimate Moshel, 
to be the ruler over the over 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 the Moshalim, over the sun, the moon, and the stars. But there's something else about that dream in retrospect, which is to understand the way time functions. And that's critical to Joseph's interpretations, both over here, obviously, and especially when it comes to Paro, because he understands that the seven is not seven beings so much as seven years. That's part of the genius of Joseph to understand the timing. So these are the two elements of Joseph's interpretation, a, a great sense of timing and an understanding what enables you to find favor with the person in power. What enables you to find favor with the person in power is, is your existence gonna help that person or not? It's very cold blooded. The same way Joseph found himself in jail and that torn to pieces by the chief butcher, he has a use for Joseph. And as long as he has a use for you, whether it's Potiphar, and even more importantly, Paro. Paro has a use for Joseph. Joseph is very useful to Paro. And as long as he's useful to Paro, as we'll see, Joseph has enormous power. And the moment Paro doesn't need Joseph anymore, Joseph will find himself with no power, basically a slave. So this is very critical to the story. So the first point is he interprets, uh, and of course correctly, that the butler is going to escape, regain his post, and he's about to make a plea to the butler, when you get out, don't forget me. Now, before we get to the plea to the butler, so I'll stop at this point, pause now, and take any comments or questions, but anything that so um, far. Yes, yes. Uh, Rabbi Silber, um, this is a comment from a bit of a ways back from Aviva Davidson. Um, she said that you were she that you asked her to remind you to discuss the significance of Joseph's coat. Okay, I will, I'll, I'll get back to that and fine. I'm just happy to All discuss right. it. Go ahead. All what right. else? Um, I'll get back to the coat. Yes, the coat. The coat. It, Joseph's coat or clothing comes up uh, not so much in this chapter. Uh, came up in the last chapter, obviously. And it comes up in the next chapter, in more than one instance, because in this chapter, he's summoned from jail and he changes his clothing, he gets out of the jail clothing. And then when he meets Paro, he gets another set of clothing, he gets a necklace, he gets the clothing of, of, the, of the kingship. So Joseph is somebody who is constantly getting a new set of clothing. Uh, that's very important. I will, I'll, maybe I'll comment on it later in the chapter when we get to, to another statement Joseph makes. Uh, I, I hope to get to it later. But what else? Uh, Richard Shore has a question. Yes. Yes. So why don't we uh, reevaluate Potiphar and give him more credit for understanding what's going on? And that Potiphar di didn't actually believe his wife. He was more aware of her nature and he, did, he was understood Joseph's character as well. And it, so he was wanted to save Joseph, yes, to serve him, but also because he didn't believe he was attempting to rape his wife. And it's certainly possible, right? And then, 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 we, then we can understand his appointing him to be in charge of the Sarhamashkim and Sarhofir as a political ploy to get Yosef out because he knows, he presumably understands what the situation is and he suspects that, well, someone might survive this. And if he can get Yosef to be in good graces with the Sarah Mashkim and Sarah Ophim, 
then it would be par they or Paro who would get him out of jail and restore him to usefulness. Well, that's possible. I don't know. I, I, I find that, that, let me just say that I don't think anything that we've suggested so far would put the Sarhat HaTabachim uh, in a negative light. There's nothing right. negative about uh, the Sarhat HaTabachim. He sees Joseph. He understands God is with him. He constantly gives him more and more power, but it's for his, for his own benefit as well. Um, and yeah, it's quite possible that he doesn't, maybe he's heard this story before from Mrs. Botifar or not. Yeah. But I would say that even if he thinks Joseph is guilty, I mean, the fact of the matter is, Joseph is useful to him because these are two important people who come to the jail. I, I, I don't think I would necessarily assume that he thinks they're going to get him out of jail. Uh, the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophir are in a mishmar. They're only there, they're there temporarily. Something's going to happen to them. As far as Joseph is concerned, the sense I have is that he may be there the rest of his life. Uh, he's tied up there. There's no good reason to get him out. So I, I don't think I would necessarily assume the Sar Hadabachim wants to help him to get out. But on the other hand, uh, there's nothing about the behavior of the Sar Tabachim which strikes us, I think, as, as, as negative, unfair. On the contrary, he was very good to Joseph. He gives him one promotion after the next. And he does hear this story. He said, she said. The Torah never tells us that Joseph has any response. He says nothing without told about a response, or even if that's possible. He hears what the wife says. He gets angry. He can't be in the same house, obviously. But so he he, he does what you would have when you have a very good worker and you suspect him of something or other. You just transfer him to a different location. You know, he doesn't want to lose Joseph. Joseph is, is a terrific worker. And he gives him the same job, actually. That was my. But I don't think I would suggest that. The Chumash says negative statements about the Sarah Tabachim. I don't think that's the case. Um, but Joseph does understand, I think, that, you know, if, you, if, if you're useful to somebody, he's going to want to keep you around. And if you're not useful to somebody, like Paro, for example, uh, he, will, he will dismiss you. They have done, the Torah is clear. They have done something. They have, the Torah says chatu. They sinned. They did something inappropriate whether conspiring against them, against him, or we're never told what it is. But the Torah uses the word hate. And when you conspire against a king who has ultimate power, it's clear that, you know, Paro can do whatever he, he, he pleases, and he does. He's going to execute the Tsar Ha'ofim, that's for sure. Uh, I'll come back to the Tsar Ha'ofim, but... Uh, all right, anybody else for a comment? Yes, I'm um, just... Um, I would just like to something. Um, can I just add something from the chat and then, Sarah? Yeah, go ahead. Um, just from the chat, um, Justin Hornstein asked, how is the term matzliach being repurposed here? We have Eliezer asking God for God being matzliach derech, and now it is a general term of personal achievement. Right. So I already alluded to that a couple of weeks ago. I'll repeat what I said then. I said that the word matzliach is found in the Bible in both senses. Uh, it's found to be successful in general, and it is true that the word Hatzliach appears earlier with Abraham's servant and elsewhere in the Bible in terms of being on a, a particular path, a successful path. And the point that I made a couple of weeks ago in terms of Joseph is that we, we the reader, may, may see the story as things sort of happening haphazardly to Joseph. That's a way to see it. He comes to Egypt, he happens to find himself in the house of Potiphar, he succeeds there, he's the Mrs. Potiphar, he ends up in jail, he happens to be the baker and the butler, etc. 
they're going to forget about him remember two years later but there's another way to read the story and that is to see joseph that's what i alluded to before this is part of god's plan the, the entire story of Breshit can be seen as a function of human behavior but it can be seen equally as god's plan and god is using god god's going to use joseph to to carry out god's plan if you look at it that way he is on a path he may not know he's on a path but he's on a very very direct path and that's the story back even in chapter 37 when joseph is lost and a mysterious man finds him and sends him to the brothers the ish the mysterious ish can be seen as god's messenger god's angel god's messenger so there are two ways to read genesis one is everything that happens is a product of human behavior but there's another way to read Genesis equally plausible, which is it's part of God's plan. And then Latzliach does carry the other meaning of to be on a path, because he's on a path. He doesn't know that necessarily, but he is on a path. That's what I said a few a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this Sarah, and then we'll continue. Yes, yes, Sarah. Um, since you stressed the fact that Sarofin, Sarah Mashkim are as if two, but actually they are one. I wanted to say that this is very characteristic of every folk story, because folk stories don't have two heroes and they don't have two antagonists. So if you have more than one, they usually function as a collective. Right. They are not different because, they, because of this simplicity of folk narratives. Okay, thank you for that comment. I actually will We'll come back to that point later on. I have something to say about that. Um, if there's time for one more comment okay. before moving Let us on. Okay, let continue. Yes, go ahead. Uh, yes, Debbie. Uh, David, I wanted to say um, that it just strikes me as interesting that Yosef had been totally um, emotionally deaf to his uh, brother's faces when he told them the story, you know, when he told them his dream. And yet here, here are strangers um, that he's taking care of or in charge of, and he notices the difference in their faces. So he's changing. Yosef is changing. That is, that is possible. It's also possible there's something else. This is his job. <laughs> you know, he's put in, he's, he's there to serve them. So the point is their welfare is his job. It's, it's not, it's the, with the brothers, their welfare is not his job. There is brothers, his older brothers. He has this revelation. And he, he feels he has to tell them for whatever reason, and he does. So I'm saying what you're saying is possible, but it's also possible. It's a different situation. If your job is to care for somebody, which is what his job is. So he has to see if they're if they're not well. You know, remember that um, in the book of Daniel, you have this over there, right? There's the book of Daniel. And in there, there's a story, I'm blocking some of the details, but no, it's, I think maybe it was Nehemiah. The king looks at Nehemiah and says, what are you upset? What's bothering you? I think it's to, to Ezra and I think it's Nehemiah. And when, he, when, when the king says that to Nehemiah, Nehemiah says to himself, uh-oh, because if he appeared before the king with a downcast face or whatever it is, the king might begin to suspect so what's, what's that right here? You're serving the king. You have to be happy all the time. You know? So those, when you're operating in that sphere, it's very different. His job is to serve these people. And when he sees they're unhappy, 
that's not going to be good for Joseph either. In other words, he's, he's concerned about that. It's his job, and it could be dangerous. What's the problem? And then they explain. So I think the situations are different. Uh, one could see it as Joseph changing in some sense, and one could see it as a function of, of, this, of the scenario in which Joseph finds himself. Okay, let's just continue a little more now. So Joseph is still speaking to the, to the board. And then he adds, seemed to be an interpretation of the dream. He says, please uh, remember me, remember me, when things go well for you, yeah. you're going to be restored to your post. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be told. When that happens, so show kindness to me. His remind me unto Pharaoh. And get me out of this house. He calls the jail a bayit. I'll come back to that. And then he adds, For in truth, I have surely been stolen from the land of the Hebrews. Here also I have done nothing. And they place me inside the, the, the pit. He calls the jail a bar. We have a lot of words for jail. We have, we have mishmar, we have soar, we have asubim, we have bayit, and we have and we have and we have bar. Interesting. So let me make a few observations about this speech of Joseph uh, at the end. After he interprets the dream, he says, "Listen, you're going to get out. I want you to do me a favor. It's going to be good. I've given you the good news. And when you get out, re remember me unto Pharaoh." Okay. Let's let's leave that out for a second. And then he adds, for I have been stolen from the land of the Hebrews. Here too, he says, here too I did nothing. That they placed me in the pit. Now we recall that in the first story, back in chapter 37, he was also placed in the pit. So calling the jail the pit is a way to reinforce what Joseph is saying he says, listen, I'm a victim. I was a victim in the land of the Hebrews, and I'm a victim here. In each case, they put me in a pit, and in each case, I did nothing to deserve it. And when you read this verse, you say to yourself, I say to myself, well, it may be true that in the story of Mrs. Potiphar, you certainly did nothing to deserve it. You should get a medal of honor. So certainly you've been a victim in the Mrs. Potiphar story. But what about the other story? What about the story in the land of the Hebrews? Is it true that you did nothing to deserve it? I don't think the Torah suggests that at all. The Torah solely suggests that the brothers have misbehaved. That's for sure. But the Torah tells, tells us about Joseph that first of all, he brings back evil report to his father, which for the Torah is a big negative. I'm not sure the brothers know that, but they do know is that he insists on not only having the dreams which bothers them, but telling them the dreams. And he does the twice. He was rebuked, in fact, by his father. So the idea that here, too, he did nothing, that suggesting that there he did nothing, that I think one can raise a question. Is that actually the case? And if, in fact, one believes that it's not true, that in the story of Joseph, he's just the victim, but rather it's true that everybody in that story has some culpability, both Jacob for favoring Joseph and giving him the coat, the special coat, and the brothers obviously for causing his sale and the attempted murder, and then Joseph. 
for his Lashon Harah, for bringing evil reports, and, and for, in a sense, taunting them, whatever he thinks. Does he really have to tell them the dreams? Um, so if that be the case, then there's a striking contrast between the Joseph of this chapter and chapter 39, the Joseph narrative, as it continued from after chapter 37. And the chapter which preceded it was the story of Yudah and Tamar. In the story of Yudah and Tamar, it's all about the person who's able to confess. That's the story of Judah and Tamar. Yes, he misbehaves, there's no question. But at the end of the day, he says, Tadkami many. And when he says, Tadkami many, when he confesses and take responsibility, something else happened to him, which is that the coat, the, the uh, the coat and the staff and the seal, which represent Judah, which are Judah, which are with her, are returned to, to, to Judah. The symbols of leadership, which were with Tamar, who's the true leader, then are returned to Judah. And now over here in the story over here, we have somebody who's incapable of saying Khatati. He has to insist that he was even innocent over there. And such a person, it's very striking to come back to Aviva's comment earlier. He never gets the same clothing back. He always gets a new set of clothing, but he never gets the same ones back because the, the, the Achilles heel of Joseph is the inability to say, I've acted in wrongly, I've acted improperly. He says quite the opposite. I did nothing wrong. They put me in the pit. Such a, such a person can move forward in life, but he can never actually get back to where he was once. Only through confession do you do that. So the striking contrast between the man who's able to regain his own clothing, which are the symbols of leadership, vis-a-vis -vis Joseph, who always gets a new set of clothing, but never gets the same set, that can be reflective of this particular verse, Gunov Gunavti Meyeritoyevrin. That's what I wanted to say to Aviva in terms of the clothing. So that's related, I think, to this verse. And now there's another point I want to make before I'll stop and take some comments, and then we'll continue with the chapter, which is verse number 14. The two points to be made about this. First of all, in the various Midrashim about Joseph, the Agadot and Midrashim about Joseph, it's fair to say that the Midrash takes Joseph to task for his uh, asking the Bogwit to help him. I want to make a comment about that, why the Midrash actually, not just one Midrash, many Midrashim take him to task. After all, what's wrong? He, the guy's going to get out of jail in three days. He has Pharaoh's ear because he's serving Pharaoh. He has Pharaoh's ear. So say, listen, you're going to talk to Paro. You're going to serve him the wine. You're going to his butler. You're going to see him three times a day or whatever. At one point in time, mention to him, this guy in jail was a good guy, innocent person, doesn't deserve to be there. He's a good guy. Can Maybe Pharaoh can help him. Get him out. Um, what's wrong? But I think what's bothering the Midrash is the following. Nothing's wrong with that. What bothers the Midrash is that what Joseph says to the Sarah Mashkim, the word chesed has appeared with Joseph actually in terms of God. Right? So chen and chesed. It's God who has been doing chesed for Joseph all along. And what is very striking is what we don't find Joseph ever doing 
and we did find his father and grandfather and great-grandfather do it, is uh, pray. He never turns to God. He may see himself as God's instrument, but he never actually prays. Only, Joseph only has one prayer in the Bible, and this is it, right here. Chesed. I mean, the word chesed, what, what Jacob sends his slave out to find a wife, not Jacob, Abraham, sends the servant to find a wife, this coming week's parsha. Uh, the servant prays to God. Hashem, okay, Adoni Abraham. I say chesed. Please, God, do chesed. That's the prayer of the servant. That's how our Abida begins. Zocher chasdei avot, right? So it's, uh, that's what the Medrash is bothered by. It's one thing to ask someone for help, but my goodness, someone's been helping you all along. Why don't you turn to God for help? That's number one. That's the first point. And the second critical point over here, and in this verse, he asked the butler to remember him. The last verse of chapter 40, of course, is that the Boa did not remember Joseph. Quite the opposite, he, he totally forgot him. And here we come to a very important point about the story of Joseph. And we'll, we'll encounter this in several, in, in several different ways as we proceed through the Joseph story. And of course, the Megillah Esther picked up on this as well, and that is, that Egypt is a place which has no memory. There's no memory. Uh, he forgets it. People don't remember. Memory means that I, what I do today is in light of what's happened in the past. And Mitzrayim is not the kind of a place. Mitzrayim is the place in which you are, uh, in which you are functioning uh, for the moment, like Mrs. Potiphar. What have you done for me lately? So we have to keep this in mind that the idea of memory or a place which has no memory will be central to the story of, of, uh, of uh, Mitzrayim. Let me stop and take comments and questions. Um, one comment, just to start things off, one comment from earlier in the chat from, <clears throat> from Jennifer Malvin. She asked, why did the text mention that the baker and cup pair dreamed at night? Uh, Jennifer, did I get that right? Well, that's what people usually have dreams. I don't oh, think that's a... yeah, yeah. I just didn't know why they then said, you know, because you've taught us how every word is um, significant. So we would have assumed it was at night. So why would they have right. to I don't know. It I, it's a good question. I mean, he sees them first thing in the morning, I suppose. That's oh, I guess there. for I time placing. Then, yes. Maybe since you, since, since you asked the question, I'll, 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 I'll suggest an answer. The answer may be nonsense, but I'll suggest it anyway. It's the privilege of being a teacher. You can sometimes say nonsense, and I never intend to say nonsense. It may be nonsense, but I'm, I'm thinking about something else. The word boker is striking. Joseph sees them in the boker. Since mm -hmm. you asked the question, now what does the word boker mean? The word boker means morning, right? By Yerevai boker. But Erev and boker, why does boker mean morning? Because the word Erev, actually in Hebrew, La'arev means when things are together, when you can't oh. distinguish things. But the word boker, mm -hmm. levaker in biblical Hebrew means to distinguish. A bikoret in the Chumash is an investigation. And maybe mm -hmm. baboker is actually a hint at the fact that what Joseph is going to be able to do is to distinguish between oh. the two of them. 
So perhaps oh. that's the point that it, it takes place by Boker, and mm-hmm. really hinting at the fact that the genius of Joseph is the ability to make distinctions. So maybe mm-hmm. that's why the Boker is it, been introduced to the story. Thank you for the question. Oh, I didn't think of thank that before. you so much. That's so, it's, it's, it could be, let's put it that way. It's possible, you know what I mean? But, yeah. the, but the point about memory, that is an incredibly important point in the Joseph story. Joseph himself, who named his first son Menashe, which means forgetfulness. Mm-hmm. The Sar Hamashki will forget Joseph. Get three days later, by the way. But how can you forget? Mm-hmm. I gave you the, this great news and you forget. But it will turn out, of course, this is part of the story, that his forgetting him uh, is very good. Because if he would remember him right away and Joseph gets out of jail and then disappears and who knows where he goes, maybe you can't locate him. You know, there was once a guy in jail a couple of years ago, who knows where he is today. But he's going to remember him at the time when Pharaoh needs Joseph. So his forgetting him for two, for minimally two years is actually a very good thing, even though at the time it appears to be a terrible thing. But in reality, it's actually quite a good thing because it enables Joseph to catapult himself from being in a jail with a life sentence, perhaps a jail in the basement of Potiphar to the standing uh, before Paro with the opportunity to interpret Paro's dream and to get out of jail and to be given a position of great authority. That's certainly the case. I do want to make a quick comment uh, before other people can speak up, and that is um, when Joseph speaks to the butler, uh, he says to the butler, please do chesed, remind me unto Pharaoh, his kartani, votzeitani milabayit hazeh. And it's interesting that in this verse, he calls the jail a bayit. And I wanted to reflect on that for a moment. In a bayit and that is, remember, the, 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 the jail over here is in Potiphar's house. Potiphar, Joseph came to the house of Potiphar, um, and he's inside, uh, he's inside Potiphar's house. For example, that's verse number uh, two. And then in verse number uh, five, once again, the second time. Third time. The house. The blessing of God extends. Once again, the bayit, right? When, when Joseph speaks to, a Poti, to Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, hey, Adoni, wa yodaiti mababayit. In verse number uh, eight, verse number nine, and no one is great in the bayit, right? And then later on, over and over, I didn't count the numbers, over and over and over again, the bayit. And I think the point now, when Joseph says to, uh, to the butler, you know, get me out of this bayit, and suddenly, you take it, you have a different take on the house of Potiphar. Yes, it's a, Joseph was in this place of enormous power. He was in, you know, the province of Potiphar, he was in charge of the house and the field. And you know. at the end of the day, though, the Chumash may be saying, 
the bite of Potiphar is in fact a jail. Not, not, not only downstairs is the jail, but being, being caught in this, in this world of Potiphar, you are in fact in jail. And I think the parallel to it, the parallel is what we encounter in the book of Esther. Because in the book of Esther, Megillah Esther, in the second chapter, the women are all brought from all parts of the, of the country. They're brought into, uh, into Ahasuerus' harem. And they prepare for a year to meet Ahasuerus, to sleep with Ahasuerus for a whole year. And the point of that chapter is that, yes, they're given all the perfume and this and that. At the end of the day, though, the way the Megillah presents it, where are you essentially? You are. You've been brought to this harem. And that's where you are for the rest of your life. You, you can't escape it. One woman may be chosen. The others will be his concubines or whatever. But basically, and the without getting to the description that McGill uses for that scenario, it is in fact uh, the Beta Lashim, the Beta Pilakshim, the Bayit is essentially pretty much a jail. And the women are taken by force. They don't volunteer to go, and they're brought to the jail. And Joseph over here, when he says, Get me out of this Bayit, he perhaps he's referring to the jail. But the fact that it is the jail is just another since the bottom floor of the house. So the point is that when he says, get me out of this bayit, the Torah wants us to remind ourselves that Joseph can't stay in his bayit. For Joseph, what Joseph has to become, he can't be in the bayit. The bayit is, in fact, where the bottom floor, middle floor, or top floor, it is, in fact, another word for jail. It's not different than the bar or the beta soar or the beta asubim, etc., or the mishmar. These are all synonyms for the same thing, which is the jail. And Joseph has to, one way or the other, get out of his jail. Now, we asked the Sarabashim to help him, to remember him. Sechartani, his kartani, remember, remind Pharaoh, whatever. It's not going to happen right away, but that's where Joseph finds himself. And the Torah is very interested in not forgetting this, that being in Mitzrayim, first of all, is problematic, and being in Potiphar's house is more problematic. Um, okay, is there anybody else for a comment? If not, we'll move forward. You have a few minutes maybe, still to go. Maybe to be in Paul's uh, house or palace is also a kind of uh, being a servant uh, in jail. C can he leave Egypt? Can he do what he wants? Of course not. Of course he can't. He, can, he, can, he can't even leave Egypt at the end when he wants to bury his father. So Paul sends his... <laughs> he has to beg to leave. His children and women are, are left behind with the animals as hostages. It's the same as the second power. There's no difference. Uh, he doesn't understand that till the end. But of course, being in Mitzrayim, being in Paro's house, you're a very well-paid slave. But at the end of the day, you have all kinds of perks and you have the fancy chariot, you know, have the Rolls Royce. At the end of the day, from the Torah's perspective, you're a slave and you can't get out. You, you, Joseph makes that clear. Joseph dies and is buried in Egypt. He begs his brothers, someday I'll get out of here. So that's certainly the case. The house of Potiphar is simply a, a, a parallel, a reflection of the, of the, of the larger bite in which Joseph will find himself, which is the house of Paro. Okay, let me just take a couple more minutes here and I'll stop for this. So this is the butler. We're not going to finish the chapter now. Let me make one more comment, though. The next verse is verse number 16. The baker saw 
that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation. Says the baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, probably hopeful he'll get also a good interpretation, but his dream is different. In his dream, there was baskets on his head and the top baskets, all kinds of food for Paro to eat. And the birds were eating out of the basket above my head. So that's a different dream. Because in this dream, obviously, the food isn't going to Paro. The food is going to the birds. And they're not being placed in Paro's hands. It's the basket is sitting on top of his head. And of course, Joseph will give his interpretation, which is, not a, which is quite unfavorable to the, uh, to, to the baker. I want to make one comment now and we'll conclude with this one comment. And next week, we'll finish this, this story of the banker and the butler. Uh, and I have some other reflections about chapter 37 that I, I think are interesting. I'll get back to that next week. But I did want to make one comment here about the, um, about the, uh, about the dream of, about, about the baker. Obviously, the baker, unlike the butler, is not putting anything into Pharaoh's hand, and therefore we suspect, and we'll find out in a couple of verses, he will meet a very unfortunate end on the part of, uh, by the hand of Paro. But I do want to make one comment about the baker. So the butler is going to make it to safety, back to his post, and the baker will be executed. Um, a couple of things to say. I want to make one point. Remember back to chapter 39. Chapter 39, when Joseph finds himself in the house of Potiphar. So the Torah said that Potiphar sees that everything Joseph does is successful. Successful for Potiphar, so he gives him free hands. He pays no attention to what Joseph does. Except for the bread that he would eat. Strange expression. He didn't care what he did at all, except for the bread he would eat. When it came to the, to the bread, maybe eating with Joseph or whatever, that he did care about. So Joseph perhaps couldn't eat with Potiphar. That would suggest a kind of equality. But short of that, had everything else. But I, I would say the following. The fact that the Torah singles out, I think suggests something about the larger story. In other words, Everything is like so, with one exception. But of course, sometimes that one exception is not a small exception. Sometimes the one exception is in a certain sense more significant than the rule. And when it comes to the larger narrative of, of Egypt, okay, what essentially, when Paro will have his dreams, okay, the thing that Paro, that spurs Paro's dreams in chapter 41, is the end of chapter 40. The end of chapter 40 is the execution of the baker. If he kills the baker, executes the baker, it means that as far as power is concerned, the lechem, because the baker is in charge of the lechem, the lechem is not in the control of paro. It's on top of this guy's heads and the birds are getting the lechem. And that's what motivates the dreams of paro. And the one who's gonna be able to figure out how do you put Paro in control of the Lechem? 
is the one who will achieve power because that's what power wants. He wants the rechem. And that's already hinted at. That works. It's already hinted at real verse when it comes to Potiphar and Joseph. Give him everything except for the lechem. But the lechem, it will turn out, is the absolutely critical piece of, is, is the critical thing that determines how much control you have. And of course, Joseph is the one who's going to figure out how to get all the lechem under Paro's control. And then once he figures that out, that will give Joseph enormous power because same as the house of Potiphar. If you make Potiphar happy, you get more opportunity, get more freedom, more responsibility. And the same is true of Joseph. Joseph will be the wisest of all. He's going to figure out how to give Paro control of the lechem, which he doesn't have. The proof is he had to execute the baker. That's the end of chapter 40. And the next verse will be Mikeshna Natayim Yomim, two years later, but it's the next verse. So those two stories are actually related to each other. Um, we have two minutes now. Let me make one last point over here and I'll stop about the baker. One could ask the question, I mean, I already partially answered the question, but one should take note of the fact when we studied the McGill together, I made this point, I'll repeat it. Why is it that when it comes to the baker and the big ton and Teresh, so they're, they're both, they conspire against Achashverosh and they're both killed. Mordechai informs Achashverosh about Big Ton and Teresh, they're both killed. Why is it important over here to have a baker altogether? Have just the butler. There was a butler in jail with Joseph. He had a bad dream. Joseph told him the dream. He forgot Joseph. He remembers two years later. What is the function of the baker? Why need a baker? So I already gave one answer. That not having control of the lechem is, is, a, is a fundamental theme of the story. But there is a second answer as well. And the second answer is this, that without the baker, it doesn't prove how smart Joseph is. Because the fact that Joseph said you're gonna live, there's no downside to that. Because if he gets out and lives, okay, that's great. And if Paro decides to kill him, dead men tell no tales. So what's lost? There's no downside to saying to the baker, you're gonna, the butler, you're gonna make it. But to tell the baker, you're not gonna make it. What if the baker is summoned three days later and Paro says, get your job back. You can still be, then you have a lifelong enemy who's the really important person in the land of Egypt. That's dangerous. For Joseph to tell the baker, you will die in three days. That is very dangerous. You'll die in the, the birds will eat your flesh. The baker, if he survives, not gonna forget that. So that will demonstrate Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And in point of fact, when the butler speaks to Paro about Joseph, these incredible Jew who can interpret dreams, he doctor mentions the baker. Me and the baker were there. I was saved. He was, he was hanged. He mentions that because that's the proof of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. We'll have to continue with this next time and move into the dreams of Paro. I have time for one or two comments or questions and we'll stop. Um, one comment from, uh, just from the face from uh, the Facebook chat, um, was from Ozzy, uh, Ozzy's from Ozzy Orbach. He noted that like when prison becomes home, when you are in prison long enough, it becomes home. That is certainly true. We know there are people who don't, who want it, who, when they get out of prison, they want to go back. That is true. But as far as Joseph is concerned, and Joseph has a mission, whether known to Joseph or not, he certainly has a mission, but Joseph is part of 
is Jacob's favorite child. Joseph is part of the family. Joseph can't, can't stay in jail. Joseph has to take his place alongside his brothers. That's the larger narrative, which is clear. It's not someone you can simply disregard. Jacob's vision is building the house, and the house of Jacob includes all of his all of his sons. So, of course, you may you could be, become comfortable in any situation. And the many people who are, spend most of their lives in prison, and for a lot of them, they don't actually they can't live on the outside, and they even don't want to live on the outside. Sad to say. Uh, but in any event, uh, having said that, that won't work for Joseph. Nor does Joseph want to stay in jail. He wants to get out of jail. Clearly, uh, he has big he has big dreams, and jail is not a place where he can fulfill his own dreams. So he hasn't forgotten those dreams. The sun, the moon, and the stars not that aren't bowing down to you in the, in, in Potiphar's cellar. Uh, so he has to get out. Uh, let me stop at this point then and we will uh, continue next week. You have any other comments, Kayla? Information? Um, that's it from the chat. Okay. Um, I just want to remind people that if you want to keep learning with Drisha, we have more classes. Classes You, you can find out at drisha.org slash classes. Our next class is with Samuel Evans. And if you want to learn more with Rabbi Silber, he has a class on tefillah at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time on Mondays. Yes, thank you very much. Thank okay. you, thank you, thank you. Looking, looking